Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. Andy McCullough. Dr. McCullough is a highly respected cardiologist and internist in New York City who's known to care for his patients as he would for his own family. He's consecutively been recognized as a top doctor by New York Magazine for years. Dr. McCullough earned his doctorate of medicine from Mount Sinai School of Medicine in New York, where he graduated top of his class with multiple honors, including being elected to the prestigious Alpha Omega Alpha Medical Honor Society. He completed his residency in internal medicine at Massachusetts General Hospital and his fellowship in cardiovascular disease at Mount Sinai Hospital, where he rose to the rank of chief fellow. Following his fellowship, Dr. McCullough served as an assistant attending physician at New York Presbyterian Hospital and an assistant professor of clinical medicine at Weill Cornell Medical College. Dr. McCullough is board certified in internal medicine and cardiovascular disease and is a fellow of the American College of Cardiology. In short, Dr. McCullough knows what he's talking about. He currently is a partner in the concierge doctor service MD2 here in Manhattan. In this episode, we'll talk with Dr. McCullough about what we should be doing to stay healthy and to live longer. So get out a piece of paper and a pen. You will certainly want to take some notes for this one. I know that I did. And with that, Dr. McCullough. Dr. McCullough, I'm so happy to have you here today. Thank you so much for coming. Um, I am so excited to talk to you about what I and my listeners can do to make sure that we're living healthy lives. We're getting the information that we need from our doctors to make informed lifestyle choices and healthy choices. And I wanted to, I guess, talk about what we should be doing to kind of live longer. And and what what do you think are sort of the most determinant factors when it comes to living longer, healthier lives? It's a good question. I think the 20,000 foot view of this um, to quote my friend Neil Chatterjee, who's a cardiologist at the University of Washington, is probably that you need a lifestyle in which you have a healthy balance of exercise, a diet, eating non-processed foods in moderation, um, and low stress levels, while avoiding all of the known offenders of cigarette smoking, reducing alcohol intake, etc., so if, if we're looking at the leading causes of death, right, what are they and how can we, and I guess the things you just mentioned are all the things we can do to avoid them, but I know heart disease is one. Yeah, heart disease is by far the number one cause of death worldwide. Um, and then would cancer be number two? Cancer and, you know, infectious diseases globally okay. in the world. But the incidence of infectious disease globally is plummeting as the rates of heart disease and cancer are rising. Are rising. Yeah. And then... Um, what about diabetes and yeah. type, type 2 diabetes specifically? Yeah, I think diabetes via the mechanism of cardiovascular disease, certainly, okay. and then dementia. Right. You know, when I was an intern, a very wise person by the name of Alberto Puig told me that when disease happens to young people... It's usually a combination of two of three things. One is bad habits, two is bad luck, and three is bad genes. And you need two of the three. Okay. I think that our genetic predisposition to disease is an important determinative factor in how we will behave going forward. It's hard to ignore those things, even though if you get into the nitty-gritty details of many of the cardiology 
risk risk prediction models, um, family history tends to fall out as an important factor. But if you have somebody sitting in front of you that says, hey, my father had a heart attack at 42, his dad had a heart attack at 50, my mom's dad had multiple vascular diseases, you know, vascular disease of the legs and the carotids. I think I may be at high risk for these things. You have to take these things seriously. And so I think the way that I approach any patient is that, you know, if you're sitting in front of me and you tell me both of my parents lived to 105 without any diseases and neither of them took any medications, you're genetically probably lower risk than somebody who has a family history littered with cardiovascular disease and diabetes. I think that common sense so, so guides I, you, some of these. Yeah, so you would look at the, you have those three factors that you talked about, right? So you, in your mind as the clinician, you'd say, okay, the genetic piece seems to be a positive for this particular patient. And then yeah. would you then ask them, you know, what well, are you the, doing? Well, the bad luck we can't. I mean, that's maybe you go to church for that. Or I don't know what you do <laughs> you for can't. that, but um, yeah. karma. But the, um, but then the, then you would sort of kind of, dive deeper about that the habits piece. Yeah, and really get into the lifestyle of the patient. And so I think um, I think that all of us are human, you know, doctors included. Um, so if you ask me how frequently do I take my cholesterol medication, I say like almost every day <laughs> because there's certainly like one day out of every two weeks where I'm like, did I take it? Did I not yeah. take it? Do I want to take two of them? And I think all of us, all of our behaviors are somewhat dictated by circumstance. So I have two young kids. I have a five-year-old and a 21-month-old. And um, my five-year-old went through a phase where she only ate chicken nuggets. And so it's like, do I make two complete dinners or do my wife and I have chicken nuggets with her? <laughs> like, what is the path of least resistance to get this little monster in bed at the right time and us keep our sanity? And so I think understanding how people behave and the reasons for why they behave is very important in taking care of them and figuring out how you can address lifestyle habits in a way that's non-judgmental and in a way that's beneficial for each person requires you to be somewhat flexible in your approach. And so if you have somebody who is a hedge fund manager and they work 16 hours a day and there is no time in that day for them to be able to exercise with any consistent frequency, us all understanding that exercise is important for reducing the incidence of high blood pressure, high cholesterol, diabetes, maintaining a normal body weight, and in terms of how long we live, there are direct science behind how much you exercise results in how long you live. How can you work with that person to come up with a routine that makes sense and build it into their day where they're exercising without realizing it. Walking to work instead right. of taking a car service to work or, um, or the train to work or the bus to work, weather permitting, or do you, those people need to concentrate their exercise on the weekends or in times where their um, career and family obligations are less? And so how do you work with people? And I think, you know, in families who have children, basically until the children go to college, that can be very challenging, especially when both spouses work yeah, and have careers. Because I think that the decisions that are made before the age of 50 are very important in dictating outside of genetics what 
this person will look like medically at the age of 60 to 70. When do you, when do the abuses of the teenage college or the college years or your twenties of, you know, doing keg stands and not exercising? I mean, is there, there has to be some point where if you decide to get your act together in terms of fitness and diet and moderation that you'll see, you know, benefits or or turnaround. And I guess my question to you is people are, are, you know, going into your office and you're asking them these lifestyle questions. I know when I was a smoker 15 years ago, I might not have totally told my doctor exactly how many cigarettes I was smoking. Um, so there's that piece. You might not be getting the full picture. What kind of, I guess the testing, right? The certain tests that you would do when you do an annual physical would be the way that you're getting the data to determine what the actual effects are of their lifestyle, right? I mean, that's your, your roadmap, right? To seeing how you need to treat your patients, right? Is based on these tests, not just what they're reporting, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, to kind of get at your question from the way that you addressed it initially is that some of the lifestyle choices that are made in the college years have durable and lasting negative impact And some do not. And so if you look at who truly has early onset coronary artery disease, who are genetically pristine, so they don't have genetically inherited high cholesterol, high blood pressure, they haven't, um, they don't have multiple family members or diabetes. It's usually people who have had exposure to cigarette smoking or exposure to um, recreational substance use which can cause injury to the walls of the arteries, specifically cocaine or other stimulants, which have become, I think, more and more popular amongst the college-age crowd. Interesting. And so these different types of substances can cause spikes in blood pressure, can cause direct arterial wall injury. And so for me, it's very important to know if somebody has ever used cocaine and if somebody has ever used cocaine... I treat them more aggressively, understanding that in my mind, they've probably experienced some type of arterial wall injury from the drug. And I'm much better off treating them as if that's happened than assuming it hasn't happened and treating them less aggressively. How, how would you treat that? So essentially, you know, you try and tailor your medical therapies to people based on their individual risk. And we can talk about population-based risk or individual risk. And so if somebody says, I smoked for 10 years and off and on for 10 years or socially for 10 years, to me, that doesn't mean they're at a higher risk than somebody who has never smoked. And so in high-risk people for heart, I'm talking specifically about heart disease, you really want to make sure that their blood pressure is well-controlled. And so if their blood pressure is 135 over 85, you really want to drive that number down and you'd, I'd have a lower threshold to initiate medical therapy or I would be much more persistent about making them making lifestyle changes to get their blood pressure under control 
if their cholesterol, if their LDL cholesterol specifically, LDL cholesterol is the cholesterol that's most commonly associated with heart disease events. There are other cholesterols that are as well, but that tends to be the historically most powerful marker. If their LDL cholesterol is borderline elevated, you know, in the 70s to 110, 120 range, which may be a time where normally you would have a conversation with that person about changing lifestyle, I would be a bit more passionate about starting cholesterol-lowering therapies to reduce their risk, understanding that if some injury occurred to their blood vessel wall previously, the lower you drive that number, the lower that person's individual risk of heart attack. So you're automatically going to assume that they have the damage, even if you don't, you don't know if they do or if they don't, because it, it's a possible side effect from having used a stimulant or cocaine or Yeah, whatever. correct. And I think you're better off assuming that the damage is there yeah. because there is no test to say, is this person's arterial walls damaged or are they normal? And so you're better off for that person in front of you in terms of their own personal risk, understanding that smoking cocaine use disorder, these are highly associated with coronary artery disease and, and, and heart attacks. And so when you have such a high degree of association, I think you're better off as a doctor being more aggressive with those patients than, than less, um, understanding you, the goal of prevention is to truly prevent things from happening, right? not right. waiting on them to happen. And that requires you to be a bit more aggressive. I guess that's sort of what I'm my thinking and kind of delving into what we what we can do, right? The sort of lifestyle choices or things we can do to optimize our health. What are the tests or what are the the markers that you're looking for to kind of understand the forensic on this particular patient? It's a great question. I think for me, it starts at the physical exam. You know, I, I've, right. I've asked all the questions that I need to ask, and I kind of have a mental idea of you know, if this person has lived their life as a Puritan for the last 30 years and has had no exposures and has no family history, I suspect that their physical exam is going to be normal. Okay. Um, but there are surprising things that you can find on people's physical exams. And so the blood pressure is probably the most, you know, we call it a vital sign because it's important for life. Um, but if somebody has an elevated blood pressure and they're young, that's a person who is high risk. Yeah. You know, and I think... I looked at these data several years ago, but, you know, high blood pressure accounts for a third of all deaths worldwide and is the most common thing to be ignored by clinicians because most people who have borderline blood pressures, which is a bl systolic blood pressure between 130 and 140 over a diastolic blood pressure between 80 and 90. You that, know, if somebody's blood pressure is 140 over 91, most doctors, and I'm guilty of this too, until I, you know, have been practicing for a while, will say, oh, let's recheck it in a year. Nothing to worry about. Your blood pressure's borderline elevated. Now I'm much more aggressive about saying, look, if your risk of falling is not high, we should really consider first lifestyle and then medical intervention to lower your blood pressure below 120 over 80. And there are multiple randomized control trial data now that suggest that a blood pressure less than 120 over 80 is by far better for that person's cardiovascular health than a more elevated blood pressure. And the reason for that is several fold, but high blood pressure can directly cause our arterial injury. And so 
if we're trying to avoid arterial injury, just like avoiding cocaine would be avoiding arterial yeah. injury, then you want that blood pressure. We should pressure. probably get that list of all the things we should. <laughs> you know, cocaine's on it, smoking. I'm sure that there is a pressure. comprehensive list, yeah. but I don't know that that comprehensive list will account for everything that everyone yeah. knows. You know, like there, there are these lists in textbooks. Um, but high blood pressure is by far the most common cause. But c- can we talk about the, I guess... You just said something where you were talking about sort of you, even you've been guilty of it, saying this is just elevated. Or it's just outside of the normal range. Right. Yeah. This idea of there's what's, quote, normal and then there's what's optimal. Yeah. Right. right? So that I think that's probably when we all go to the doctor for our checkup and they said, oh, your blood pressure's in the normal range your cholesterol's in the normal range. It doesn't necessarily mean it's as good as it could be. Correct. And yeah. we're not having that or at least you know, I haven't historically had that conversation with my doctor. Like, what would be, what would you get excited about as a doctor? You know, my blood pressure is very low. You know, I have three children. I was in the hospital having them. The nurse would come running in. You're you know, worried about my blood pressure. I'm like, oh, no, 90 over 60 is normal for me. And I can barely run to a fire exit. So it's not like I'm, you know, it's a reflection on my fitness. It's just genetic, to your point. Yeah. But, um, but for people that whether it's genetic or lifestyle, have elevated blood pressures. That's really, I think what you're saying, that's where you now today are very aggressive about their treatment. Yeah, and I think the automatic blood pressure cuffs in many doctor's offices, mine as well, often provide estimations of the blood pressure. You know, you really need your blood pressure taken properly. Right. um, So you have the exact number. But I, you know, my primary care doctor for years when I would go would just take it with the cuff and I would trust whatever the cuff yeah. said and we would kind of move on. But I've seen swings in tw- of 20 millimeters of mercury in either direction on the top or bottom because the automatic cuff is just estimating. It's not actually listening. But then, you know, for those people who have high blood pressure, you can develop reduced elasticity of the blood vessels. And that reduced elasticity of the blood vessels, you know, think about a garden hose turning into a lead pipe, can cause a a deleterious cycle of higher and higher blood pressure, which will ultimately cause the downstream consequences of stroke, heart failure, and heart attack, you know, at the 30-year mark away. And so I think the earlier you can be more aggressive about it, better. But what blood pressures get me excited? When do I say, this is a great blood pressure? Less than 120 over 80. Because it's yeah. so rare to see less than 120 over 80. Just the American lifestyle, in terms of the foods we eat, alcohol use can contribute to high blood pressure. Caffeine use can contribute to high blood pressure. It's so rare to see people who have less than 120 over 80. So when I do, I'm always very happy. I'm so glad. And I've had a I've... string of about a month <laughs> where it's been below 120 really? over 80. I've been so happy. And I yeah. haven't even been in your office. That's great. <laughs> no, so, I need you. Yeah, exactly. I need you to Just come to, by. To help your, your, your numbers there. Make sure you stay in that with the patients under 120 over 80. Yeah. But what, so let's say you do have someone, because part of what I want to impart to listeners is what they can do, right? So what, so do you have high blood pressure, let's say? Yeah. If they were your patient, what would you recommend that they do? Is it, would it be lifestyle changes and medicine? What, what's your usual protocol? It depends on the blood pressure that you're measuring, but let's say somebody who has borderline blood pressure, which I think is the most common subset of people in our generation. And so somebody's sitting there with a blood pressure of 135 over 85. Yep. 
also doctors when they measure blood pressure never report odd numbers because the scale is in even numbers so you can tell if it's automatically or manually taken (laughs) Um, so 134 over 82 because we measured it Um, the first thing that I would recommend that they do if they're not is initiate an aerobic exercise program and so um, you know what the American Heart Association recommends, which there are now recent, I say recent, it's from 2018, which is now like six years ago, it's hard to believe, recent data that suggest that 150 minutes a week of aerobic exercise greatly reduces the incidence of high blood pressure, heart attack, stroke, and cardiovascular death in big numbers. And so there's a study published out of the UK called the PURE study, where they basically surveyed everybody in the national health system of the UK every year for 10 years or multiple times a year. I can't remember the specifics of the methods, but found that at 150 minutes a week of aerobic exercise, longevity improves and the risks of heart failure, heart attacks, stroke, all plummet. And so the way that they defined exercise, by the way, that's what I was going to ask was a moderate intensity walk. And so how hard is it to walk for 30 minutes a day? That's a lot easier said than done for many people. So in Louisiana, where I grew up, your lifestyle is in August when it's 100 degrees outside is couch to car to desk to car to couch. Um, It's a lot harder than it seems. But if you can walk for 30 minutes a day, five days a week, Compared to doing nothing, you drastically reduce your risk of heart failure, heart attack, high blood pressure, and stroke. Now, does that have to be 30 minutes at the same time, or can it be cumulative? Like you walked, you know, you parked in the parking lot, you know. It's a good question. Yeah. Um, The... There was a recent study that looked at this. Can you do it all at once or does it need to be spread throughout the week? There was no difference on a weekly basis. Okay. And so one would say... On a weekly basis, you should be getting 150 minutes of activity, whether that's all at once or whether that's sprinkled throughout the days. That's so that seems so low to me. But I guess if you ask me what makes sense to me, I think it should be all at once. I think, you know, hormonally, you want some type of hormonal response to exercise. And the way that you elicit those responses, the way that you know that something has been elicited is if there's a light sweat at the end. Right. Okay. And so the hormones that we secrete principally, you know, the lay term is adrenaline, but epinephrine, these hormones can cause us to sweat. And so if you're sweating, you're getting a hormonal response and that hormonal response is what you want after you exercise. Some people say I sweat just because I'm a sweater. (laughs) Yeah. But how, you know, you bring up something interesting and I want to talk a little bit later about the mind body connection and that, that piece of it, the stress management piece, which I think is also critical too, right? To longevity. Yeah. If you're not, if you're not exercising all at once, you're not getting, as you pointed out, sort of that endorphin release, sort of the, you know, there's that, there's the part of exercise that also helps with this, with that part, right? With the stress part, with the mind part. So if if it's that hormonal response. Yeah. Yeah. If you're sweating, you're doing what you need to do. Right. Um, the, you know, there's interesting paper published in May of this past year, May of 2023, that looked at antidepressant use versus yeah. running to treat depression and, and no antidepressants in the people who were assigned to the running arm. 
there's a caveat to that study in that the people who were assigned to the running arm really wanted to be in the running arm right? right. They were <laughs> and did not want to group. be in the antidepressant yeah. arm, which would be me probably like nobody wants to take a yeah. drug. Right. I, I think I, I cannot think of a single patient who I have ever taken care of that would say, I would really like you to prescribe me something for this right. for me to take every day for the rest of my life. Nobody wants that. Everybody wants a non-pharmacological approach to the treatment of what's going on. And this study had 140 people and half of them were assigned to, to run and half of them were assigned to an antidepressant for the treatment of depression. I was going to say, were they all diagnosed as depressed? Major depressive disorder by you know psychiatric diagnosis. Um, and both interventions had the same effect on their depression. Wow. And exactly the same effect. How long, um, did they have to run to get that Six benefit? weeks. Six weeks, but how long in each, each day? I can't remember the specifics. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, and I don't want to misspeak given that yeah. we're on the record, but, yeah, no, yeah. um, but what they also found is that in the patients who were in the running group, they had better blood pressure control, yep. better weight, were less short of breath and more physically active right. going forward. And so if you can spare someone an antidepressant by assigning them to an exercise program, wouldn't that be the route that made sense? Right, and so I think, because you're checking off so many other boxes too in terms of benefits to their health. Correct. Not just that the, the, the depression, um, addressing the depression. Yeah, and I mean, 140 people in a clinical trial is a small study. You know, in cardiology clinical trials, there are sometimes 20,000 participants. Oh, wow. Um, but the effect sizes of drugs are so small that you need that many participants to show a meaningful difference. Here, they were able to show a difference in physical activity and in and health healthcare outcomes with just 140 people. It's a pretty dramatic effect. Yeah. The um, so, but it's all based on this, you know, hypothesis that if you're able to generate a hormonal response to what you're doing in terms of adrenaline, and then the counterbalancing hormone of adrenaline is often never talked about, is a hormone called acetylcholine. Adrenaline is the fight or flight response hormone. It's the hormone that makes you feel anxious, that raises your blood pressure, dilates your pupils. We've all had that. that feeling before before a really hard exam and you're shaking and that's pure adrenaline. So the counter to that is a hormone hormone called acetylcholine. Acetylcholine is the hormone that slows everything down, lowers blood pressure, lowers heart rate, helps you sleep, helps you digest food better, regulates your bowels, um, and relax. And if you can get a surge of adrenaline while you're exercising, your body naturally will rev up your levels of acetylcholine to reverse the effects of the adrenaline. And those that increase in acetylcholine is what's most likely responsible for people having improved mood, lower blood pressure, better sleep. Wow. And feeling better. Yeah. And so it's... Nobody likes that feeling of the fight or flight response. I mean, maybe there are some people that do. I certainly don't. Um, but everybody enjoys the feeling after. relaxed. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's so interesting. You know, I you've heard sort of, oh, if you exercise, you'll sleep. You just sort of sleep better. I assume it's because you're like expending excess energy. But obviously, there's real science behind that. So, high blood pressure, 
the exercise, we know it's at least 150 minutes a week. Yeah. And the Dr. Andy McCullough recommendation is doing it all at once. So you can, you can sweat, you can get that adrenaline release. When do you start recommending medicine or what other recommendations would you make for, for your high blood pressure patient beyond exercise? I have a family member who has high blood pressure. <laughs> See, I'm really, he might be my husband, but, uh, <laughs> but anyway, so I'm really kind of, and I always tell him to stop putting salt in his food. So I want to, I want to hear about the diet piece with that too, but yeah, it's a great question. I think low salt diets definitely affect blood pressure. They're great data. Um, something called the dash diet. Yes. Um, the the less salt you have if you are hypertensive, probably the better. And the first class of medications that you use to treat high blood pressure are all all make you waste salt. So funny, I have a physician friend who started one of these medications and he urinated so much because his hypertension is really salt driven that he couldn't he couldn't drink enough water to make up for it because he was wasting all of his salt. And he said, I will never take your advice for blood pressure lowering again. I have not slept in a week because I'm peeing so much. Wow. It just speaks to like the side effects of these medications. Yeah, yeah. But reducing salt in the diet and reducing alcohol intake. I think for our generation, um, the less alcohol, the better. And if you abstain from alcohol, you can really see, you know, 10 to 20 millimeter drops in blood millimeter mercury wow. drops in blood pressure um and so so, that, so in your from your perspective it's not even a moderation if you have high blood pressure you should probably stop drinking it's not i it's different for every person right. you know some people have business dinners it's very awkward if every person at, at the dinner is having a glass of wine and you're having a diet coke at 8 p.m at night it, right. What? How are you going to facilitate that business transaction? Yeah. I'm not giving business advice. Yeah. I know nothing about business. Um, but I, I can echo what my patients have said. Look, I would try to do this, but I cannot. Right. And right. I do think that people tend. You said earlier that you kind of skirted around how many cigarettes you told the doctor yeah. you were smoking. Yeah. I do think that people tend to be honest. Oh, and I, so. I <laughs> actually, now that I'm turning 50 this year, I am more honest, but I used to lie. I would sort of share what I hoped would be by, I'm like, maybe a couple cigarettes or no, like two glasses of wine a night, you know, yeah. not every night, but, you know, as opposed to maybe, you know, some nights we'll have more than two glasses depending on what we're doing. So yeah, I do, I do think just so you know, as patients, not everybody is giving you the full picture, which is why I was wondering the other tests that you're looking at yeah. to figure out what, you know, what steps or what recommendations you'd make. Do you think it's because you felt judged by the doctor? You know, that's interesting. I think it's more that I know that I shouldn't be doing that. Like I, like I know I shouldn't be smoking. So I'm going to not say maybe it's 10 cigarettes last night. Maybe it's a few on occasion just because I know that it's, I shouldn't be doing it. So it's almost like telling mom or dad that you did something wrong. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, maybe it is, you know, sort of more of a judgment. But now that I'm kind of like, gosh, it really, really matters. I think when you get older, you're sort of like, you, you want to share as much as possible because you want to make sure that the doctor has all the information to help you have the best, you know, treatment or make the, 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 um, the most appropriate recommendations. But when you're 30, you know, you feel a little more invincible and think you can fudge how many cigarettes you might have had. 
yeah, the, the night reason, before. And I know you're interviewing me, but the reason that I ask <laughs> is because my grandmother would never go to the doctor. Yeah. Because every time she went to the doctor, she was morbidly obese. Every time she went to the doctor, the doctor made her feel so guilty about her yeah. weight. And so it ended up being that she had undiagnosed recurrence of kidney cancer from this elbow pain that she had, but she wouldn't go to the doctor to be seen about the elbow pain because the only thing the doctor would talk about was her weight. Wow. And so I wonder what environment is in the room. Yeah. Yeah. That makes people feel like they can't be forthcoming. Yeah. And you know, as doctors, we, and my mom was a nurse, so I really feel like nurses are probably better. I don't want to say this. This is going to be a polarizing comment, (laughs) but I do feel like, Caring is a big aspect of what you have to do. And taking care of somebody is creating an environment where they won't feel judged. Yeah. Like, how can you make these things better? Understanding that none of us are perfect. Yeah. As compared with this, you know, old hat, white coat, I'm the doctor, you will do what I say because I'm the doctor and this is what I say. Yeah. Where I wouldn't feel comfortable. And I've been in that situation where I haven't felt comfortable. And so I just, it just, I don't know. I just made me, it's been in the back of my mind since you said it. I've had these conversations with friends. We've all laughed about how we haven't totally shared. And even because what scares us is when we do share what we, the, the reduced version of what we're doing and the doctor still is like, whoa, you need to, (laughs) (laughs) then then you're like, oh geez, what I can't imagine what he or she would say if I gave them the full, the full picture. But back to the, the blood pressure thing just for a minute. So you've yeah. got exercise, you've got diet. Let's talk about diet. I mean, I there's a lot of discussion around whether you should have to have a plant-based diet if you have cardiovascular issues. I know, like, for example, Bill Clinton is now vegan, um, and it's it has dramatically you know reduced his cholesterol, his weight. And I think weight is also... Would that, is that also a factor with, with blood pressure? So weight, diet, what else should people be thinking about that have high blood pressure? It's a good question. I think for blood pressure specifically, um, salt, alcohol, and caffeine intake okay. tend to be the major dietary contributors. If you ask, quote, what is the best diet, there's no answer to that question. And okay. Part of the reason that there's no answer to that question is that the dietary science is biased. So there's this effect in medicine and in medical literature called the Hawthorne effect. And it's based off of a power plant in Hawthorne, New York. And essentially what they did is at at the Hawthorne power plant is that every six months they would change the rules of how the plant employees were supposed to behave. They would change the work hours. They would change the responsibilities. And every six months, the efficiency of the power plant went up, even when they were changing the rules back to what they were at the beginning. Oh, wow. Because people change their behavior when they're being watched. And that's called the Hawthorne effect. Okay. And so dietary science is littered with the Hawthorne effect. And so when you read a study like the Mediterranean diet study, which was later retracted in the New England Journal of Medicine, you have to read these things with a grain of salt. Why was it retracted? I can't remember the exact reason why it was retracted now that I say it. I I think, I don't know if you've read the book, The Blue Zone, The Blue Zone Diet, where they've actually researched sort of these areas around the world where people live longer, and then they've tried to do a 
a deeper dive into what they're eating. And yeah. there are some common common things, whether it's fish, whole grains, alcohol, and real moderation, like a glass of wine, a small cup of sake. But it's a lot of fish. It's a lot of vegetables. It's a lot of fruit. It's a lot of olive oil. The Blue Zone sort of came out after the Mediterranean diet craze. It's not totally clear what parts of the Mediterranean diet are the... Um, the important ones. Yeah, the important ones. Yeah. It's more just this, you know, if you're to look at it, I think it's protein, veggies, olive oil over butter. I mean, is that kind of the... Yeah, I mean, yeah. I think when you when you articulate the things from the book, nobody will hear that and say, oh, that sounds unhealthy. Right, Right. Exactly. And so I think some of it is, and I don't want to say it's common sense because it's not common sense, um, but I think some of it is just being aware of what's going into your body. And so if you look at diets that have last, like I'm going on a diet to lose weight, most diets that have been studied fail because the second the person stops the diet, they revert back to the way that they right. grew up and then they gain all of the weight back. So like I said, I'm from Louisiana. So I grew up on McDonald's and Taco Bell yeah. and all of the foods of the southeastern United States, gumbo, jambalaya, all of the good New Orleans stuff. And so I got to 330 pounds. Oh, wow. When I was 18. And then I had to change something because as a doctor, I, w I wanted to go to medical school since, since I was a small kid. And as a doctor, you can't be a hypocrite. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's one thing you cannot be. And so if you're going to tell people to lose weight, you can't weigh 330 pounds. And um, I went on Weight Watchers and I found that, and I'm not endorsed or supported by them in any way, but I found that it, in me choosing what I could and could not eat, it has been far easier to sustain weight loss long term, which is now, you know, 20 years, more than 20 years, sustain weight loss long term than doing an Atkins restrict all carbs. Right, right. Because our bodies, and I've tried restricting all carbs and going completely carb free, but our body needs carbohydrates to live. Right. And our brains will interestingly have us eating them after a certain period of time, whether you're conscious of it or not, you know, like, Oh, I will have that piece of bread. Right. Right. <laughs> and the second you go off the diet, you gain all the weight back. But between keto and intermittent fasting and paleo and weight watchers and Atkins, all of these diets boil down to the fact that you need to take in less calories yeah. than you're expending every day to lose weight. They're just a different mechanisms for taking in less calories. So if you're only eating for six hours a day, quote, intermittent fasting, then you're only taking in calories for six hours where you would have for 12 hours previously. Statistically, the odds are that you're going to take in less calories. Right. Right. I think in the way that I counsel patients about weight loss is that you need to figure out how much energy you're expending. And there are several different machines now that can measure basal metabolic rate. You know, if you go to if you go to a gym and have a physical fitness assessment yeah, by yeah. anybody at any of the equinoxes, they all have this thing and it'll I tell hate you those. I hate the pincers. I don't want. Oh, to yeah. No, you don't want to. It's not it's not fun. But you do learn how much. And, and there are medical ways to do this, too, where you can essentially measure somebody's basal metabolic rate, figure out how many calories they're burning with doing nothing and then prescribe them a diet where they eat fewer calories than this. 
And then they can choose what they want to eat and have some sense of what's good and bad. But I think that awareness is important. Specific dietary problems that I've seen, especially with the keto diet, are that it can really cause uncontrolled elevations of cholesterol because people supplant all non-ketogenic foods with protein, meat, animal-based protein, which causes, you know, cholesterol to skyrocket. But I think prescribing somebody, especially if you're prescribing somebody from Louisiana, if you're going to say you need to be vegan and on a plant-based diet, that is an intervention doomed to fail yeah. <laughs> because people need to be able to change their behavior in a way where they can change the behavior for the rest of their life. Right. Not just for and, these and six Bill months Clinton, so I can sure get into this, and, into this know, suit yeah. for this wedding, yeah. you know, yeah. and, and socioeconomic resources play a big role in that. Yeah. People, you know. Healthy food is expensive food. Yeah. When we were in medical school, um, a now cardiologist would joke, I love going to Taco Bell because it's the highest calorie per dollar ratio <laughs> that you can find <laughs> only, on the menu. Only a cardiologist the, would talk well, about it. Well, now cardiologist, then he was not, right? We were just kids. Yeah. Um, but, but I think there's something to that as we track healthcare outcomes. How can we make healthy food more accessible yeah. to people who can't afford it. Yeah. And, and I think just accessible. It's not even meaning that there are some places in our country where they're, they don't have markets. Like I did this shoot years ago when I was in my early 20s when I was working for a production company um, at a, um, a reservation, the Lakota Sioux Reservation in South Dakota. And they didn't even have, I mean, their supermarket was essentially what we would refer to more as like a, a convenience store. There was no fresh, fresh food really in it at all. It was all processed food. Yeah. And so when you were talking about sort of, we were talking about kind of high blood pressure and health in general and trying to sort of have a balanced diet, eat healthy food, eating food that's not processed food would probably be right. One of the a thousand percent. Yeah. Yes. One yeah. of the things we people want to avoid. And I know there was a study I think that came out recently about the effects of red dye. Did you, Red dye red in, dye in, study, in no. candy, um, that it's it's cancer causing, oh, um, which I mean just makes sense that it's not healthy for you, right? It's red dye. I mean, yeah. I don't, you know, it, it's in Skittles and certain candies to avoid that. But um, and I also done a few years ago. I was um, chaired the annual appeal for Sloan Kettering, and the it was for prostate cancer research, and the doctor was. Um, Dr. Scardino was the head of the department then at Sloan. I don't know if he still is. And he was explaining to me and to the woman that I was working with that before World War II in Japan, there was literally zero cases of prostate cancer. And then after when Western diet, particularly fast food, they, they've literally tracked the incidence of prostate cancer going up and that there is a link between you know, prostate cancer is one of the cancers, particularly colon, I think might be another where diet is such a big, yeah. a big factor, right? Yeah. I mean, and, and then we're not going to talk about cancer because that's a totally different thing, but it's just interesting that the diet, it's not just even the calories, but the nutrients, right. That you're putting in your body, what you're actually eating. Um, yeah. How much important. of what you're eating is causing inflammation of your gut. Yeah. We, we got to get to the microbiome. Okay. So blood pressure, exercise, little or no alcohol, watch your coffee 
and watch your salt. Yeah. And then if you are kind of in that elevated range, you might want to talk to your doctor about getting being on medication to manage yeah. the blood pressure. Definitely. And then, you know, you asked what tests can help better yes. define somebody's risk. I think when I think of testing, I think about it mainly in terms of cholesterol lowering. Okay. That maybe I mean as an internist, I test for everything, you know, you check every organ of the body. But in terms of, I think many people in our age group have borderline high cholesterol. And there are solid data now that if you can identify people who have what the guidelines call risk enhancing factors, yeah. um, that those people may benefit from the earlier initiation of cholesterol lowering therapies. And, you know, obviously, if somebody's LDL cholesterol is above 190, that person needs will, therapy, will, yeah, no matter you, what. Will you tell us that? So what are what is normal range? It's, it's LDL and HDL, L, L, There is the, the main, total cholesterol, okay. triglycerides, okay. and LDL. Okay. Those three are probably where you can identify problems. HDL cholesterol tends to be... You know, we call it the quote good cholesterol say, because good it's one? not because it's not associated with coronary disease. But the reality is it's we can't do anything to really change the level of HDL aside from it's associated with exercise. So the more ex exercise you do, the higher HDL goes. But there's no medication that's ever been shown that by raising HDL, you will lower someone's risk of heart disease. And so I don't want to say it's the ignored component of the cholesterol profile, because if you have low HDL, it signifies somebody who's at a little bit higher risk. Okay. But giving that person HDL is not going to lower their risk. But you probably could have possibly a high HDL, good cholesterol, but also have a bad reading of the bad cholesterol? Correct. And, okay. you, and you don't want to assume like, oh, well, I don't need a therapy because it's all the good cholesterol. Right. That would okay. be the incorrect assumption. If you ask what is the ideal LDL cholesterol, that number has changed multiple times over the last 10 years. When I started internship, it was everybody should have an LDL cholesterol close to or below 100. Okay. As my training went on, that number got driven to 70 or below. And as of last August at the European Society of Cardiology meeting, that number was changed to 55. Wow. And so... Now, how does that... Don't let me go off track, yeah. but how does that information disseminated to other cardiologists? So that's a new study. That's a new number. Yeah. It's sort of like I... Not to go, I'm getting off piece. You've got to bring me back. But, you know, my um, gynecologist wanted me to have a colonoscopy at 45, not at 50. This yeah. is five years ago. Now they've switched. I think the recommendation is down officially to 45. But she was recommending 45. And then I was talking to a family member who goes to a different doctor. said, oh, no, my doctor said it's 50. I said, well, my doctor said it's 45. Now it's more commonly 45 being recommended and but, probably going to be 40. Yeah. Well now the, the incidence of colon cancer are skyrocketing in young, younger people. I know, but yeah. And the risks of colonoscopy are present, but not so high that you don't need to know. Right. Right. You know, and especially if somebody has a family, if somebody has a family history of colon cancer, it's 10 years prior to the diagnosis of colon cancer. So if that colon cancer diagnosis was 41, they're getting colonoscopies at 31. Right. But is that a, so you learned this at this conference, right? The number's now 55. 
how long does that get trickled down to, and I don't know what body, you mentioned the, I guess, the American Academy of, of Cardiologists, or what? what is the... U.S. body that disseminates there, the that. Ma- the, there are two principal cardiology organizations in America: the American Heart Association. Oh, right. Which I think everybody is familiar with. Yep. As we tomorrow will be entering Heart Month, and um, the American College of Cardiology. Okay. The American Heart National Meeting is in November, and the American College Meeting is in March. Um, the European Society of Cardiology typically meets in August, okay. and so between those three meetings or when new data are presented. And you asked the broader question of when do doctors hear about I this? I guess it depends on how diligent your doctor is. It depends on how neurotic. I would yeah. say you say diligent, I say neurotic. Yeah. And so um, many of me and my colleagues are poring over the data as they're coming out, talking about it, what makes sense, what doesn't make sense. You need somebody who is plugged in and aware of the changes right? and not somebody who's not reading and not staying on top of this. And new data comes out continually. You know, there's, there are new journal articles every week for, for, from all of the major cardiology organizations, but also all of the major internal medicine organizations, all of the major surgical organizations. And so you it really sounds have like you to need stay. sort of like an associate or someone who's like, like, <laughs> you just, need an unlimited like, amount of time, like, like the law, the law firm, you know, um, comparison of someone doing all of that for you and giving you a briefing. Cause it, you know, it sounds like you could be spending hours and hours and hours. You have week. to really like what you're doing. Yeah. I will say that. Um, but also in the back of your mind, you want to do what's best for the yes, person sitting in front of you. And then there's also the piece once it's, it's the information reaches those three kind of governing bodies, right? Or associations. Then it has to get to the insurance companies, right? Yeah. Which is, and I probably, they're reluctant, I would think, to, or there's a push and pull, them wanting to these tests earlier because... I mean, we can, in November, there was a large study presented at the American Heart Association National Meeting on the use of semaglutide or Ozempic. Yeah. And cardiovascular outcomes... Oh, I read heart this. attack, stroke, and heart failure in people without diabetes. That, on, it, it actually reduced their risk. Way reduced their risk. And on January first, all of the insurance companies who I have been in fights with changed all of their guidelines to not approve the drugs unless the patient had diabetes. Right. Which is so crazy. Yeah. Because they would save so much money if they just approved the drugs. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the, but think, the drugs are expensive, and so they don't want to approve them. Because then their bottom line looks better. Exactly. Exactly. Well, you know, it's interesting. I, You were saying the bad cholesterol, the number now that they're recommending is 55. Optimal is less than 55. Okay. And when you say optimal, look, I don't think any doctor wants to over-treat patients with medications. Right. And so figuring out, like I said at the very beginning of who is high risk and who is not high risk, we could agree probably that the highest risk person is somebody who's already had a heart attack. Okay. And so for those patients, you really want the LDL cholesterol below 55. Okay. And that will almost always require medical therapy. Okay. The, um, the counterpoint to that is how many patients are we going to be giving medical therapies to where we won't actually make any change to their lives? where we won't prevent a heart attack in those people. And that's the hard part of this, 
because for somebody who has an LDL cholesterol of 114, if they're otherwise healthy, they have no other medical problems, no family history, 55, is this going to be the time you start that first medication? Your gut instinct says, yes, absolutely start the medication, get their LDL cholesterol as low as possible for as long as possible. But there are several prevalence studies that have come out, um, and I think it was in July when I read the study in the Journal of the American College of Cardiology, looking at the percentage of patients who had coronary artery disease based on LDL cholesterol. And the cat, for the patients who had an LDL cholesterol greater than 190 in this study, the prevalence of coronary disease was only 7%, which in my mind, I would have thought it's 100%. Yeah. Um, and figuring out who will actually benefit from these therapies and who will not benefit from these therapies is incredibly challenging. But there are a litany of tests that we can do to kind of get back to what tests you need. For those of us who have borderline cholesterol, the first one is something called a high-sensitivity C-reactive protein. Going back to 2008, this test has been repeatedly validated to show who is and is not at high risk of having a heart attack. And if you have a high-sensitivity C-reactive protein of less than one, your 10-year risk of heart attack is truly negligible and you don't need to take a cholesterol-lowering medication. If your HSCRP is greater than four, you absolutely need a cholesterol-lowering medication. And that dichotomy is real. And is that a, bl it's a blood test? Blood test. And so you just check it at the same time all of your other blood tests are checked. I'm writing this down. What is this? A C2? And, and, and why, is that, is that not, why is that not on every doctor's panel? I don't know. It's fascinating to me that it's not. Um, Medicare will not reimburse for this test. So that's one reason. Um, and wow. it's unclear why Medicare won't reimburse for this test. But it's like a, the test costs $70. It's, um, it's called a C2. High sensitivity CRP. CRP. C-reactive protein. I and see. the uh, kind of the science behind this test is that heart attacks are caused by plaques that are in the arteries. And I think that what the lay understanding of how these plaques behave is that over time, slowly, these plaques will grow and then they'll narrow blood flow. A blood clot will be there and then block the artery. But indeed... The plaques are more like a pimple, to use a gross analogy. Okay. And they're a cholesterol core covered by a cap. And thin capped plaques in the presence of inflammation are more likely to rupture. And the rupture of that plaque, like the popping of a pimple, yep. exposes the cholesterol core to the bloodstream. And a blood clot forms and occludes the artery. So that's not a artery that's 90% blocked before. Right. These right. are 5 to 10% blockages. And with modern imaging, imaging techniques, principally um, with a CAT scan of the arteries of the heart, with the use of contrast, something called a CTA of the coronary arteries, you can actually measure the thickness of the cap and find out, is this a high or low risk plaque? Now, who would you recommend? So you've got a patient who has this high sensitivity CRP protein? Is that your first step in identifying that they need the medicine? A cholesterol lowering Would therapy. that be, what would trigger you to prescribe getting the CAT scan of the, of the arteries or take it to the next step? That is a question that is littered with drama. Okay. Okay. <laughs> there are two camps. 
I think there are probably more than oh, two is, scans. Oh, is this the what we, we would maybe know as the full body scan? No, no, okay. this is different. This is a specific CAT scan of the arteries of the heart. Okay. And there was a study because these CAT scans are often prescribed by ER doctors for patients who come in with low-risk chest pain. Low-risk chest pain, what that means is somebody who's not at high risk of having a heart attack, so somebody who's young with normal cholesterol and no family history, who comes to the ER with chest pain symptoms that sound like it could be from the heart, you'll get a CAT scan of the coronary arteries, and if all of the arteries are open, their job is done. You're okay. This chest pain is not a heart attack. You can go home and take ibuprofen. There was a study called the PROMISE study that was ran out of Duke that found that when these CTAs are used, you can improve a patient's survival. And that doesn't make any sense. Why would getting a test improve your survival? But if you are a reasonable person who um, believes what we do in medicine is correct, you would think that they probably discovered a lot of non-obstructive or minimally blocking coronary plaques on these CTAs, and then they were treated for them with cholesterol-lowering medication where they wouldn't have been otherwise, and it reduced their incidence of heart attack and death. There are polarizing viewpoints about this study, because that was not the question that the study was designed to answer. The study was designed to answer the question of, can we exonerate heart attacks in young people with low-risk chest pain with the scan? And the answer to that was over overwhelmingly yes. But I think the second part of that question is very interesting. And so for you know about 20 years, maybe more than 20 years now, there's been a test utilized, just like the high-sensitivity CRP, called a calcium score, which is over time... As people have cholesterol plaques longer and longer, you can do a low radiation CAT scan of the chest and see if there's calcium in the coronary arteries. If there is, then you've diagnosed that person with coronary artery disease. There's no ifs, if ands, or buts about it. If there's calcium there, there's coronary disease there. And start them on a cholesterol-lowering therapy for coronary disease. But that doesn't have contrast, so you can't see inside the vessels. I see. And young people people our age, usually do not have calcified plaque. They have non-calcified plaque. And so if you have something that a calcium score will not pick up, the calcium score would be zero if there's no calcium there, you're missing probably a small subset of people. I don't want to make this sound dramatic. Probably a small subset of people who have coronary artery disease that's going undiagnosed. And those are the well, people kind of like who the in 10 years could have a heart attack. Yeah, like but if you false, started therapy yeah. now, you would prevent it. But you're still, you're still able to treat and get more information to, to appropriately treat the other, if you said it's a small subset of 4%, the other 96%, right? If you had that information. Correct, yeah. Um, it's sort of I like, have never ordered a CTA of the coronary arteries that I have not found helpful in one way or the right, other. Right, right. But it's radiation, well, and that, so you certainly don't want to, to do it expose often. people to radiation unnecessarily, but also the use of IV contrast. You can have an allergic reaction to the contrast. And so these are the risks of that right. test. But on balance, these risks are truly minimal. Um, but the early diagnosis of coronary disease, I think, is hugely important given that it's the number one killer in the country. And so figuring out how we can 
use the data at hand or data that are forthcoming to be able to more appropriately and targeted in a targeted manner order these tests to find out who does and does not have coronary disease I think will be important. So if you have, let's say you have high blood pressure, you have high cholesterol, you've got a patient, who, let's say, who has these two things, you would automatically probably order this high-sensitivity CRP. Without question. I order yeah. high-sensitivity CRP on everybody. Okay. And for people who use Medicare for their insurance, I disclose to them that it's not covered by Medicare. Would you like this test or would you not? Here's why I think it's important. Here's why it may not be important. If you're already on a cholesterol-lowering medication, that test doesn't really help you. It's for the decision to start a cholesterol-lowering medication. And then there are a couple of other tests, lipoprotein A, LP little a, which is another key component of cardiovascular risk, and then a protein called APOB. And why are, they, are they, these are not tests that are part of a usual blood panel that you would get at a physical? No, one of my, um, one of my friends is a lawyer, and I saw him a couple of months ago, and he said, you know, I had my, my cholesterol, my LDL cholesterol was like 130 what do I need to do anything about it? And I said, well, what's your high sensitivity CRP? What's your APOB? What, like, what yeah. are these things? And he's like, my doctor's never ordered these things. But yeah. that's the common answer. Yeah. So tell me what, so someone has been told by their doctor that their cholesterol is high and that they should consider going on medication. Tell me when you, you I mean, you were looking, just explaining how you look at all these other tests too, but for just sort of the the lay person going to the lay doctor that isn't ordering all these other other tests, what range do you think kind of is an automatic trigger for the medication? And I think I shared with you before we started that I just was speaking with a friend on the phone who her cholesterol is 300. I guess combined it's over 300, and her doctor said, you know, you should go on the medication, um, but it's genetic. And so she said, because it's genetic, I don't have to go on the the medication. I guess her doctor determined that plus the fact that he did a scan of her carotid arteries and said that they were clear. Yeah. It sounds like from what you're describing, that's not enough information to determine whether or not she should be on the medication or not. And I told her I was talking to you. She said, ask the question. So I put you <laughs> on the spot to ask you the question. But then the other thing is that for just for other, you know, not her specific case, but for all people, what it, what is the number if they, if they don't have access really to all these other tests. Yeah, and LDL cholesterol above 190, you're getting medication from anybody that you go okay. see. Um, that is incredibly high. Okay. Understanding that optimal, we've now defined as below 55. Right, okay. Um, LDL cholesterol is between 130 and 160, I think. You can have a conversation with people and order all of these corroborative tests. Sometimes there's a good reason why the LDL cholesterol comes up. You know, like... I had my second baby and I've gained a significant amount of weight and now my LDL cholesterol is 150, but it's never been that high. You have them lose weight and watch it come down. So in that range, considering all of these other things are normal, you may, may be more judicious. But if your LDL cholesterol is above 190, you need a cholesterol-lowering therapy, anyway, essentially without question. What are the So I think in that case, this person was sort of weighing the benefits of that. Maybe you could speak to the benefits of the medicine or the benefits in having the, the cholesterol lowered. I think we've walked through a lot of them, right? Avoiding plaque buildup and all and potential long-term damage to the heart. 
But what are the side effects or drawbacks from taking the medicine? It's a good question. And it's, you know, the two principal things that are quoted are muscle pain. And the second is memory loss. Okay. And the memory loss is probably ancient from the 1970s studies of these medications because cholesterol medications tend to be prescribed in older patients who have memory issues. Oh, I see. (laughs) Okay, so it's hard to sort out, is that direct cause and effect? The more recent data for non-statin-based cholesterol-lowering, they're injectable cholesterol-lowering therapies now, which you take once every two weeks and dramatically lower cholesterol. Those drugs are called PCSK9 inhibitors. In In the data from those trials of the PCSK9 inhibitors, the lower the LDL cholesterol goes, the less memory issues patients tend to have, which is an interesting hypothesis. The other, the muscle pain side effect, I think, is the one that's the most... Is that with a Crestor? Is Crestor a common? Yeah, Crestor, Lipitor. Right, okay. um, Zocor. There are a whole host of statins out there. All of them have been associated with muscle pains, which we call myalgias. There was an interesting study run out of the UK um, where in patients who were prescribed a statin, they would at random, in a patient by patient, so, so let's say it's you or I, and we're taking our statin, at random they would insert placebo and then reinsert the statin without the patient knowing and found that the incidence of muscle pain was the exact same between placebo and statin on a patient-by-patient level. They called it an N-of-one study, which is just so clever. Because even when I started my statin, you know, I felt for the first couple of weeks like I was having muscle pain. And I probably was, but like, is it real? Is it not real? Is it just because I ran the day before I started taking it and now I'm sore? What's the medication? What's not? And that can be really hard to sort out. But I will say... Despite the more recent data showing that this myalgia side effect is, you know, suggesting that the myalgia side effect is bogus, I have absolutely patients who cannot tolerate statins because of muscle pain. It's directly related. You stop the statin, the muscle pain goes away. Um, In those patients, insurance companies will approve the newer injectable therapies, PCSK9 inhibitors for cholesterol lowering. But you really have to try. They really want you to try because the injectable therapies are so expensive. Because they cost more. Yeah. So you'd start on the the Crestor Lipitor, and then if that if you're having bad side effects, you can switch to the injectable. Yeah. And the injectable has actually has studies that show that it could actually help reduce memory loss. I think the injectables, you know, they're the average LDL cholesterol you get on these therapies are between twenty and thirty, and in comparison to statin therapy alone. They are far superior preventing heart attacks and stroke. What about people? So let's say you're in that, you said the 130 to 160 range, right? Yeah. Um, would, and they're hesitant to take medication. They said, I want to I change my diet or I want to change my lifestyle. How long would, do you give people? I mean, is it, do you come back in six months? Is it three months? Usually three to six. Three and to you, six months. It, you know, if it's like 158, I would say come back in three months. If it's 131, I'd say come back in six months. Okay. You know, kind of and they'll, cause being I, reasonable I about it. recently lost quite a bit of weight over the past two years, and my cholesterol went down. I was in that cusp 
range and my cholesterol went down dramatically just, yeah. just from the weight loss. Yeah. Just with di- with so, diet and lifestyle intervention, you can dramatically lower cholesterol. If someone has coronary disease, like their calcium score is positive, then you really should be on the therapy. One, you need your LDL cholesterol below 55. Right. But two, there are non-cholesterol lowering benefits of statins and the injectable drugs. And so if you look at the basic science literature, statins, you know, I remember I said it's kind of like a pimple covered with a cap. Yeah, yeah. Statins will thicken the cap to prevent the plaque from rupturing. And they will actually deposit calcium within the plaque turning it from a soft plaque into a hard, hard plaque, plaque which is better and hard plaques don't rupture so you're redu- you have a reduced incidence of heart attack okay wow so if you're in those high risk groups taking the you statins, really should be on yeah. the statin yeah and then if you do nothing you're really just watching the time bomb right, right. you're just like kind of standing back and saying what are we waiting on so even if and that's been an evolutionary concept, I think. 20 years ago, you wouldn't start cholesterol-lowering medications in a 30-year-old. Now you absolutely would. Right. Well, I think it's that argument or that that the 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 philosophy is, is it intervention or prevention? Yeah, I correct. Think, you know, prevention seems like a healthier way to go. It's a less costly way to go if you can start administering those therapies or having making those lifestyle changes before you get to the point where you have to have the open-heart surgery or you had the heart attack or it's just easier to unwind the damage or prevent it from happening in the first place. So blood sugar. So if we're thinking about like causes of death or type two diabetes, what do you think about blood sugar? Meaning you see a lot of these new monitors, right? Which is telling people what certain foods are causing their blood sugar to spike. Yeah. What is the correlation between blood sugar and health is it is it having spiking blood sugar is is it creating more um, stress on your organs why does it matter it causes arterial damage okay. just like cocaine or high blood pressure i see okay. arterial damage of the eyes kidneys feet which is why patients who have diabetes i don't like the word diabetics patients who have diabetes have eye issues i see okay yeah and so um the phenomenon is called insulin resistance, and so okay. your body naturally produces insulin to bring down your blood sugar. The more fat cells you have, the higher your insulin resistance, meaning your body needs to make more and more insulin to bring down your blood sugar. Insulin is a hormone that causes you to gain weight, and you get into kind of this very negative pathologic spiral. Well, that's why you you can be in a in a kind of a a group where you're sort of high risk for type two. Yeah. And then if you make lifestyle cho- changes like losing away. weight, it, it goes away because you reduce your own insulin resistance. I see. Yeah. Okay. The other things that can reduce your insulin resistance are, um, building lean muscle mass. Okay. And eating diets that are low in complex carbohydrates. Okay. So no processed sugar. These are high. Dr- these are foods that cause these spikes. in I glucose. see. It's interesting. And though. that's where I think the use, utility of these continuous glucose monitors yeah. is. In patients who have diabetes, they're amazing because they don't have to prick their finger anymore. Yeah. And I cannot think of any medical thing that you oh. can do to someone that is worse than pricking their finger. It is horrible. Um, I have had, I've had a needle have to go into the tip of my finger, which I can tell you about another time. And not the, not the quick one, but a real needle. 
I, I can't even describe to you the, yeah. So, um, but in patients who don't have diabetes, you can wear a glucose monitor for two weeks. There are no scientific data to support the use of this. Okay. But I suspect that these data will be forthcoming because so many people are doing this off-label. Off yeah. Um, where you wear a glucose monitor and see what your offenders are because everybody behaves differently. Everybody has a different diet. You That's wear the monitor so and you find, oh, popcorn is really bad for me or the bacon, egg, and cheese from the cart is horrible for me. And you might find some surprises. Like I had a friend who did it and... Rice was terrible for him. Yeah. Where but, rice may be normal for you or but I. pasta was okay for him. Yeah. Potatoes and rice were, were not. And so, you know, I guess it's just giving you more information to make healthier choices. But that, that's, I was curious as to what, why it mattered. And I guess you're, why the blood sugar mattered so much. And it's, and it's the stress on, on these arteries. Yeah, correct. So, uh, speaking of blood sugar, Ozempic, Monjaro, these are popular drugs. What are your feelings about them? I think you can't argue with the data. The data suggests that they cause dramatic weight loss and reduce essentially all negative cardiovascular co consequences, probably because of the weight loss. The downside, which I tell every patient who wants to start it, yeah. is we don't know how to stop them. Because the trials didn't look at how do you get people off of these drugs. Interesting. And like with any diet that you start, that diet should be sustainable for the rest of your life. Yeah. So if you stop these drugs and you haven't made any meaningful lifestyle change. You're going to go back to gaining weight. One would presume. It's hard to know if that's actually true. But there's also pretty significant data that if you start these drugs, patients who have alcohol use disorder greatly curb their alcohol use. Yeah. So they're acting is that because somewhat of the, centrally. Is that because of the blood sugar? I mean, the drugs work right by... by. I think they're curbing urges. I see. Yeah. I think that there's something neurologically happening in addition to slowing down the gut. And then the real downsides, uh, aside from not knowing how to stop them, are they cause a lot of GI side effects. Yeah. Like diarrhea, constipation. I see much more constipation than diarrhea, but diarrhea is there. I've had two patients exhibit horrible diarrhea from the drugs, but everything slows down. You feel nauseated. You get full easily. Um, but you would prescribe them for patients where you're looking at, you're trying to weigh. Correct. You know, here, yeah. You know, the, the other things aren't working. Let's see if this can work to help bring their weight down. Cause I know if their weight, if they weigh less, they're going to be less risk for diabetes. They're going to be have you know better cholesterol, better blood pressure, right? Reduced incidence of sleep apnea. All of these obesity associated phenomena. Um, so I'm mindful of the time because I know you. I I, I want to do sort of a rapid fire. Okay. okay. This is almost like a you know we're on a game show, but let's. I'm equally responsible um, for the time though. No, you're not. I. So okay, we talked about different tests and tools. How often should people be seeing their general practitioner? At least once a year. At least once a year. Yeah. Okay. And more than and that, it, if there's something that's obviously Yeah, if there's something going on, you should be seen more frequently. And then what tests should be routine for you, both with your general practitioner or with other doctors? Like, should you see the the audiologist or the, is it an ear doctor? I mean, you know, I don't know. What, <laughs> what else? A hearing, specialist. A hearing specialist. What, what other 
tests. So first, let's do your general practitioner. Yeah. So what, what tests should he or she be ordering? Definitely kidney, liver, function, electrolytes, your blood counts, okay, your cholesterol profile, your thyroid function. And then in addition to the cholesterol profile, I would say high sensitivity CRP, ApoB, and LP little a. Okay. And then what about, obviously, they're taking your blood pressure there. Should you be getting stress tests or or um, sonograms of your heart or your carotid arteries usually, annually? Or? Usually not. If, if there's no problem, then you really shouldn't. Okay. Yeah. It, I mean, those data are pretty clear. The false positive rate is too high. Okay. And so the the... If you're not at high risk, meaning you would, your your cholesterol is in the normal to optimal range, yeah. and your blood pressure is also, and your physical exam is normal. Okay, um, we talked about cholesterol. I'm going through my list of things I wanted to ask you about. Um, what about assessing cancer risk? It's a great question. I think. Do you do you recommend that people go get genetic testing done if they have a family history, or what other other? T- I mean, I know that there's obviously. Yeah, well, there are these blood tests for cancer that have come out. The false positive and false negative rates are really high to employ this in a population wide way. Like, not everybody should get a blood test for cancer. But for women who have family histories of breast cancer, especially early breast cancer, um, BRCA genetic testing, BRCA testing should absolutely be considered. Okay. Um, And is that covered by insurance if you have a family history? Usually, yes. And if no, I think it's $150. Okay. um, And you can ask your general practitioner for that or your gynecologist? Yeah. I mean, we do them in our office and we're general practitioners. The um, mammograms have been contentious. You know, several years ago, they raised the mammography age to 50, and then they recently lowered it back to 40. Yeah. So it makes you wonder why. Um, but I think in general, and my, my practice is to start mammography after having kids and breastfeeding. Okay. Or 35. Okay. After a conversation with a patient. Okay. And then colon cancer is the other one. So now it's 45 for colonoscopies. I tend to recommend 40 especially if people have a high risk of colon cancer. Um, There are also those tests. I have several patients who are below 40 who have had colonoscopies for other reasons in which we have found precancerous polyps. The more that you do that, the more you really want to screen everybody with a colonoscopy. Um, And then there's the full body imaging. You know, this MRI Kim Kardashian put on her Instagram, this Pranuvo. um, I love that you follow Scan. Yeah. I I don't. (laughs) But I got sent the article in the New York Times so many times. That you're like, (laughs) You can't ignore it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, But um, I've had many patients get them of their own accord. And I have recommended them to some patients. And the people who I have recommended them to are patients who have unexplained cancers in the family. Oh, okay. Okay. So like esophageal cancer, but never drank or smoked. Okay. Yeah. Pancreatic cancer, but never had pancreatitis, didn't have heavy alcohol use. I don't think we fully appreciate all of the causes of pancreatic cancer in general, but if there's a family history of pancreatic cancer. I've said, you know, you're 65. Why don't you and get how a baseline yeah, so, scan? So what, is there an age for that? Uh, I, for- I use 65. There are no data in this space. Um, and I rarely recommend them. 
Um, but to the company Pranuvo's credit, they're actually doing a clinical trial out of Boston to try and figure this out, which gives me confidence, not... Yeah. Why ask the question if people are using your service anyway? They really want to do the right thing, I think. And so um, trying to figure out how to use that most appropriately is going to be the next exciting part of the next five years, I think. What about, we talked a little bit about SSRIs and that exercise study, managing stress, depression, the, the, the effect of mental health on one's physical health. Do you ever, do you recommend to your patients that they consider some sort of a practice to help manage stress, whether it's yoga or meditation or? Always yes. Okay. Always yes. I always ask about stress and see if I can work. Some people have very deleterious responses to stress, drinking every night, Yeah. Um, other substance use issues. Some people exercise in response to stress. Right. I think working with people to figure out how they can best lower their stress within the bounds of their career and family circumstance, familial circumstances are important. Um, mainly because stress causes high blood pressure. It causes high cholesterol. It causes the secretion of hormones, which cause weight gain, which leads to insulin resistance. It's all, you know, there's, what about sleep? What about sleep? It's a good question. I mean, I guess it, I was going to ask you how much what's optimal. I'm sure it depends on the person. For me, it's much more important that people feel well rested when they awaken. That they're awaking, they're awaking they're naturally. Awake. And, yeah. that... and they feel well rested, which is the answer is never for anyone. But I was going to say, <laughs> if you, gosh, I really yeah, need to get some but, sleep then. Um, and then strength training. We talked about aerobic exercise. I think you there was one... You said there was one one thing you mentioned about Yeah, so the weightlifting is important because the more lean muscle mass you have, one, it helps keep you stronger for the rest of your life. The stronger you are at 30, the stronger you are at 70 as you lose muscle mass with age. But two, it very much reduces insulin resistance. Oh, wow. And makes your body more sensitive to insulin. Oh, great. Yeah, which is another tool that you can use to attack the metabolic piece of the puzzle. So our takeaways are we are definitely going to be getting these additional blood tests and asking for them from our doctors, which is the high sensitivity CRP protein and then the two others. LP little a and APOB. And then exercise a minimum of 150, 150 minutes a week. 30 minutes a day, five days a week. All, try to do all at once. Try to break a sweat. Yeah. Um, Breaking the sweat, most important than the number of minutes. Avoid processed foods. Yep. On the diet front. A diet in moderation, understanding and having an awareness of your caloric intake. Um, you see nothing wrong with using one of these blood sugar monitors to, to see, you know, what what is... I see nothing wrong with it other than you may become a little neurotic. Okay. <laughs> and looking at when you get your cholesterol numbers really sort of looking at it, not just what's normal or what's elevated, but trying to get yourself closer to the optimal range. Yeah. Okay. And give us those numbers one last time. Yeah. So optimal, optimal is an LDL cholesterol less than 55. Okay. Desirable is an LDL cholesterol less than 70. Okay. And keeping our weight down will also help our cholesterol, our blood pressure. Insulin sensitivity. Yep. All of these things. Any other final parting words? No, thank you for having me. Oh my gosh, Andy, thank you so much for coming. I know we kind of 
you know, discuss so many different things and I could have done a deeper dive into so many of them. We might have to have you have you back. (laughs) I'm at your behest. I'm at your behest, Leslie. (laughs) But thank you so much. I really appreciate you coming. Oh, it's my pleasure. Great talking to you. You too. Okay. And that brings us to the end of this episode of The Interview. A huge thanks again to Dr. Andy McCullough for joining us. And as always, thank you for listening. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Instagram at The Interview with Leslie Heaney. A new podcast is released every Wednesday. Until then, this is Leslie and don't forget to join The Interview. The Interview.